This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast that honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. And today we're talking about the Punisher himself, John Bernthal. Andrew, run down his history. Um, my, my Punisher is whatever that guy's name is that played him in the 2006 movie. Tom Jane. Tom Jane. Tom Jane. My Punisher, the only Punisher I recognize. We'll get into it. Um, I think you'd find a lot of people that would disagree with me, regardless. Sure. Um, John Bernthal was born in Washington, D.C. in 1976. He studied acting at Skidmore College, which is a great name for a school, uh, the Moscow Art Theatre, briefly, for a semester, and Harvard before moving to New York to perform in plays in 2002. Initially a guest actor on shows like Boston Legal, CSI Miami, and How I Met Your Mother, Bernthal's career began its ascent when he was cast as Shane in The Walking Dead. From there, Bernthal began appearing in supporting roles in films such as The Wolf of Wall Street, Fury, and Sicario. In 2015, Bernthal appeared as Vigilante Frank Castle, a.k.a. The Punisher, in Marvel's Daredevil before headlining The Punisher Show itself in 2016. He is a regular cast member of films written and or directed by Western Renaissance man Taylor Sheridan, including Sicario, Wind River, and Those Who Wish Me Dead. Since 2015, he has had supporting roles in The Accountant, Baby Driver, The Pilgrimage, Widows, Ford vs. Ferrari, and King Richard. He played Johnny Soprano in The Many Saints of Newark, the prequel film to The Sopranos. Bernthal is a method actor and has often used weight loss, physically demanding training, and exhaustive research as ways into the characters he plays. His most recent roles include Netflix's The Unforgivable and David Simon's newest Baltimore set series, We Own This City. We own this city. <laughs> Put your hands, hands up, up for Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know it's actually my lovely city and not I love this city? As, Apparently, yeah. As, as per the, that tweet that went around. Yeah. Um, Only city. I don't know. <laughs> Cut that. Um, yeah, it was my idea to cover Bernthal. And my reason, I will say, may have been a little selfish in that uh, those who follow me on Letterboxd. At those Portsmouth, who wish me dead on Letterboxd. <laughs> <laughs> At Portsmouth, uh, may notice that I'm always adding movies to my watch list on the service. It's ever growing. I'll never conquer it. But I do get satisfaction of clearing a film from the watch list after I've watched it. And basically, I noticed that um, I had three Bernthal movies on there. And I thought this would be a great way of forcing me to clear them and thus giving me that rush I crave. And uh, those movies were Pilgrimage, Shot Collar, and Those Who Wish Me Dead. But I also think he's totally worth covering in that, apart from the Punisher series, you know, he's never played the lead part in a major movie. In fact, you know, he'll often show up for one or two scenes in movies by big directors and then, you know, was out. Mm-hmm. Um, one scene wonder. Exactly. And um, obviously he has that immortal line in Baby Driver where he says, if you don't see me again, it's because I'm dead. And then just never shows yeah. up again, which is great. But um, shows up in Sicario on Wind River very briefly. He's in a few seconds of Widows playing Elizabeth Debicki's abusive husband. But I feel like in all those movies, particularly Wind River, where he is like the pivotal scene in the movie, like he leaves such a big impression. Mm. And um, I think what's very cool about John Bernthal is that when you see him, you know, he's a handsome man, but he's got a very American, masculine, yeah. jock vibe. And I think a lot of it is to do with his nose. Like it's it's, repeat, it's reportedly been broken 13 times. And um, yeah, he's doing press for that new David Simon show on The City. I think it's out in Ireland next month. But there was a big profile on him in The Guardian and... In it, he says that when he was younger, he would always get into fights. And the piece states that there was this incident in 2009 where when Bernthal was walking with his dog, a drunk man called it over and grabbed it. And then when Bernthal retrieved it, the dog, the man began following him and eventually Bernthal snapped and punched the man in the face. And in the Guardian piece, Bernthal says that the incident was an epiphany for him and that he recognized he needed therapy to control his rage. And he's quoted as saying, like, if you talk to folks who knew me as a young man, they would tell you it wasn't going to work out for this guy. But I found this thing acting and... 
you know, I've worked on it like crazy. I put everything I have into it and it's really a dream. I've know? worked on it like crazy, bro. <laughs> exactly. And But it, it, it seems like when Bernthal's being interviewed now, he often talks pretty eloquently about masculinity mm. and what he thinks it means. Like there was that clip of him that went viral on Twitter from Hot Ones, yeah. the YouTube chicken wing show. Where my he, favorite show. He says, um, you know, there's this thing going on right now where the rigidity and unbending inability to move off of your opinion, that is being confused with patriotism and strength and masculinity to say it's my way or the highway. For me, that's the most un-American thing in the world. As for being a man, you need to be able to talk to anybody. You need to be confident enough in yourself that you know you can make a mistake, that you can learn from everyone, that you should approach and engage in dialogue with people that think completely differently than you. And uh, I know I'm going a bit in depth on his personal life, but I do think that interesting duality with Berntal between looking so masculine while also thoughtfully probing notions of masculinity is something that manifests a lot in his performances. Absolutely. And, and the role he takes on in that like, he often moves between these kind of hyper toxically masculine characters in things like Fury or The Wolf of Wall Street or Shot Caller to playing male characters who you think you have a read on when you first see them, but actually reveal themselves to be a bit deeper. Mm. And I even think that's why he makes a great Frank Castle in The Punisher, you know, like, because um, I've only seen the first season of the Netflix show, but I remember enjoying it because the 2004 movie with Thomas Jane is so grim, which I suppose is fair given it's been a man whose family is murdered and then becomes a vigilante. God's going to sit this one out. But, you know, for a superhero movie, it doesn't have a lot of thrills. I'm, right? Would you argue? Is that fair to say? Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I always found it thrilling. Okay, well... I was always thrilled by it. I think that one's a little grim. And then the, there's the 2008 movie with Ray Stevenson, which I have a big soft spot for, mm. but is not serious at all. It's like super flippant. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> like yeah, too much yeah. so. And I think Bernthal was better able to thread the line between a comic book adaptation and the fun genre stuff that comes with that and a more serious explanation of the character's pain. Um, before you begin talking about specific movies, do you have a, any grander thoughts on Bernthal? I think you just summed it up pretty much. That's uh, That's everything I think about him. Other than the Punisher stuff. <laughs> yeah. Thomas Jane all the way. We'll do yeah. Thomas Jane maybe someday, someday I guess. Someday, yeah. He's yeah. kind of a lead in a lot of movies, though. Uh, it doesn't matter. We can do it. Sure. We can still do him. Who knows the name Thomas Jane? No offense, Thomas Jane. Do you want to talk about The Wolf of Wall Street? Sure. John Bernthal plays Brad, a scumbag Casanova and Quaalude dealer to Jordan Belfort, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and his many capitalistic, greedy cohorts at the stockbroking firm of Stratton Oakmont. Brad's wife Chantel, played by Katerina Cass, by virtue of having Swiss citizenship, helps Jordan and his right-hand man Donnie, played by Jonah Hill, smuggle their fortunes into Swiss banks when things start to go a little topsy-turvy in the world of stockbroking. It's a joke. It's a joke. I'm sober. Jesus Fucking joke. Fucking stupid. Stupid. Fucking driving you like a fucking maniac. You know the attention that that fucking draws. I'm not stupid. I'm smart. smart. I make million dollar deals with smart, important people, unlike you. People who don't sucker punch people when they're scared, okay? Scared. And by the way, I haven't gotten an apology yet for that. I check my fucking messages every day when Did I come you? home from work. My answering machine, one, huh? zero. I got a blinking light because I don't have shit from you. I got my yeah. wife checking the messages every 45 minutes, calling the office and saying, has Brad apologized yet? Is there an apology message on the machine? Apology. I don't you know have what? jack shit. You know what? That's not how you treat yeah, people. You got a big fucking mouth. You know what? I'm going to give you a fucking pass. Just give me the case. Oh, you're going to give me a pass. Yeah, so... Bernthal's like, uh, he's mostly a background presence for a lot of this film, but when he gets put center stage, he's like the equal of this film's major players. He's like the black of a 4K TV or really rich coffee. Maybe you don't always appreciate him as much as you should, but every time you notice him, you wonder how you live life without him. It's like, you know, it's one of those things that's like, um, 
oh, I don't know, uh, who can, or like or anything that's improved your life. Like for me, you know, oh, it's uh, it's guacamole, it's uh, it's Carly Rae Jepsen, it's uh, um. <laughs> New Balance sneakers, you know, something that's so much of part of your life right now. Um, but were someone to take it away one day and you could never have it again, life would be immeasurably worse. That's what John Bernthal is to me. And I presume, I think a lot of other people as well. Um, and I think he just by presence alone, he adds this just this incredible heft to a scene, whether it's comedy or drama, because he's so much bigger than everyone else in the movie. Like he's really he's cut, he's really ripped and he's quite tall as well in comparison to all these kind of weedy kind of looking finance bros essentially and um like he's introduced and he's just working out in his in his mom's back garden and um, before he becomes like a full-time quaalude dealer to the stars and um he's just making he's dealing drug like weed to teenagers and he's just making fun of their moms um and what i will say is i was watching this movie um I, the, it was the first time I'd seen it in 10 years and the first time I saw it was part of a triple date which is, first of all, Wolf Wall Street not really a date movie, three hours long full of, like, set a world record for cursing endless amounts of nudity, sex and drugs and so I waited about 10 years before I saw it again, not 10 years um, actually nearly 10 years, actually, 9 years before I saw it again and um, man, these, these kind of movies like the Wolf of Wall Street, Goodfellas, they're great when you've got no one like me moralizing in your ear about how they like um about how they're glorifying greed or drugs or how they're immoral and it's like oh man this it's just so it's just nice to watch a a great film about bad people yeah exactly yeah. yeah and i think if you're if your media literacy is so poor that you think these movies are glorifying a lifestyle that we should all want and aspire to then you should be forced to watch paw patrol for the rest of your life that's the thing because like the wolf of wall street you can sort of get it on a very servicey level like oh it's glorifying mm. it but I think what the movie does is make you think like, oh, it, you could see how it would be fun to be around Jordan Belfort. But then yeah. I think towards the last act, you see like things are going to hell. Like, yeah, this is awful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like this is the worst. You know, like they become even worse people. And it's like that, like take Wall Street for some or exa- for example, like the tagline is greed is good. And similar to like Goodfellas, the Irishman or the Godfather, like movies about crime families the people in the life of like the finan- of the finance criminal enjoy it so much and find such a sense of like family in it that it becomes kind of hard to see anything else outside of the life like you can't imagine like being a a, a criminal stockbroker is like is what Carly Rae Jepsen is to me you know your life was immeasurably worse before it's so much better now that you have that now that committing financial crimes is in it and it would be immeasurably immeasurably worse afterwards um and that's why no one in this movie really changes by the end. You know, they're all in the same kind of... They're still in the same kind of graft, whether legal or, or illegal. And and those that get out alive continue to do what they do best. And also, imagine how boring and, like, totally jarring it would be if at the end DiCaprio's Belfort had such a radical change of heart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, you want people to be good? Fuck off to Tiernan Oak. <laughs> okay. So, two thumbs up. Babies. Andrew Carroll. Sorry? Two thumbs up, Andrew Carroll, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm cool talk about I wait all week for the fucking equaliser. <laughs> right, oh, Gene. Uh, uh, what a picture. I love his... What um, a picture. He, he's a John Berthold guy who just looks great with any kind of facial hair. Yeah, he's look wonderful. So good. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I love the sort of weird goatee he has. In yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, can I talk about a shot caller? Go for it. 
Um, yeah, this is streaming on Netflix now. Um, it stars a very good Nikolai Coster-Waldo from Game of Thrones as Jacob, a successful stockbroker. Hey! Um, with line. A, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Uh, he's a stockbroker with a wife, uh, played by Lake Bell, and a kid who is sent to prison for his role in a deadly DUI car accident. To survive. But not for stockbroking. No, no, good, oh, okay. good stockbroker. He's like, oh, how's the Doe Jones? You know, oh, okay. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, to survive in prison uh, for protection, he joins a white supremacist gang and rises up the ranks, eventually earning the nickname Money. And uh, the movie switches backwards and forwards in time between Jacob, aka Money's experiences in prison and him after he served a sentence and is organizing a major weapons deal for the gang on the outside. So you're telling me it was a drive by? I'm just telling you what I told you. It sure didn't feel random with that gun aimed. Hey, 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 look, this is on me. This is fucking on me, but I'm going to fucking handle it. I'm going to check their fucking asses, and I'm going to find out who took those shots. I'm going to fucking handle it. Not until the deal's done. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm on it. Man, I know you like the fucking kid. I like the kid too, man. He might have been G.I. Joe over there in fucking Afghanistan, but that's not where we are, is it? You know who I am. You know what I'm about. Now, I need to be with you. I need to be on your fucking hip. You know I can't be seen around anyone validated like I'm doing right now in broad fucking daylight get everyone in check we got too much on the line for any more bullshit yeah it's very good um it's directed by rick roman Waugh, who has become jared butler's guy he made one of the olympus's fall movies uh, but also greenland the disaster movie that came out last year which is a really great movie um, oh okay but do you ever see no. you, it's really good it's great um but before becoming butler's dude he made a few crime thrillers that explore social issues like there's the one snitch which I think Bernthal's into that. With Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne yeah. Johnson. And um, Shock Caller is in that mold too, in that it's very compelling to witness Jacob on account of his you know, terrible mistake enter this nightmarish environment and watch him learn to adapt and transform to survive in it. And so it's got that classic prison movie vibe. One man must become a Nazi to survive. <laughs> but uh, originally Jacob is sentenced for 16 months, but as part of the gang, he's forced to you know smoke a heroin partake in a prison riot and kill a snitch and just on that we see him in slow motion shanking someone in their cell while voiceover from one of the gang leaders in the movie played by jeffrey donovan says the fact is we all started out as someone's little angel and then a place like this forces us to become warriors or victims nothing in between can exist here um jeffrey donovan from sicario yeah yeah good actor heavy heavy artillery <laughs> and suvs must be a monday um I think that's a pretty good line. The nothing can exist in between here. Um, in summing up the movie, but like Jacob gets caught on camera um, doing one of these things for the gang and gets another nine years on a sentence. And the movie, I think the movie tells its story in a matter of fact way that never gets too preachy. But you get a sense of film is trying to highlight the flaws of the prison system in America mm. that like, a person could enter prison as punishment for a mistake they made, but leave a professional criminal. But. Um, yeah, Bernthal's pretty good in this. He plays Shotgun, a member of the white supremacist gang who is very intimidating to Jacob when he first meets him in prison, like he's full of bravado. Um, Shotgun gives Jacob an order to do something and Jacob's clearly not comfortable with it, but he, but he doesn't say anything. And even then, Shotgun is like, have we got a problem here? In like a very scary way. But in the flash forwards in the movie, outside of prison, their dynamic seems kind of reversed in that Jacob is the one giving Shotgun orders and Shotgun seems like he's trying very hard to please Jacob. Jacob. And um, so you know that something happened in prison that mm. sort of like shifted their dynamics. And you get a sense that with Bernthal's character, the shotgun is better able to thrive in the kind of confined, regimented environment of prison rather than on the outside where like he's a bit of, his life's a bit of a mess. Yeah. And um, slight spoilers involving shotgun, but Jacob 
basically discovers the shotgun is an informant for the police. He's being uh, strong-armed into it because the police have arrested his wife on a drug trafficking charge. So Jacob uh, kills him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it should be said. Shotgun, horrible person. He's got Nazi tattoos over his body. He says racist, misogynistic things. And to his credit, I don't think Bernthal tries to make him in any way sympathetic, but instead is more focused on making him believable. You get when Jacob sees Shotgun in prison, how imposing Shotgun is to him, like Bernthal's scary in those scenes. But Bernthal also shows in brief little moments, like when Shotgun's running to the police and is so panicked, or in Shotgun's death scene, that beneath his character's bluster and the tattoos and the macho energy he projects, there's like nothing there, really. Mm. You know, like he's not intelligent. He's really impulsive. He makes a bunch of mistakes. For one thing, whatever put him in jail, joining a white supremacist gang, yeah. like two big things before the movie even started. But getting caught by the police and becoming a rat and then not covering his tracks well enough so Jacob finds out and even as he's bleeding out after being stabbed by Jacob Shotgun's last words to him are just him saying over and over again like I ain't no punk I ain't no punk <laughs> like even as he's dying it's all about how I'm perceived yeah yeah by others which is kind of pathetic and yeah he does a lot with limited screen time and Shotgun one flaw I have with the movie is that it's around two hours long with credits I think that's too short for a prison movie about trying to survive a long sentence particularly one that keeps cutting away from the claustrophobia of the prison setting because of the two timeline approach in which it tells its story at times because of that i think shock collar becomes a little montagey which slightly i'd say dulls the power of some of the supporting cast performances which are really naturalistic and the movie has a good cast like um on top of the names i mentioned already there's halt mcelaney omari hardwick from army of the dead is that oh, movie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh emery cohen from lords of chaos and benjamin bratt like it's good actors yeah but I believe, like, when trying to make a great prison movie with that narrative, not about breaking out, but, like, surviving jail over mm. a long period, I think you got to make it long so you get a sense of time passing slowly for the characters and also how the prison... And also the audience. But also, like, <laughs> how the prison ecosystem works, like, who's in charge, how it functions. I think Shock Caller slightly skims over all that stuff, whereas A Prophet, the French movie, which mm. tells a very similar story to yeah. Shock Caller... Um, doesn't and i think which makes it a, a fair bit better it's also 155 minutes long mm. um shawshank redemption classic of the genre yeah. 142 minutes you know uh, but that's a minor grab like it's it's still a very good dark thriller streaming on netflix um do you want to i'll let you go off on um taylor sharon <laughs> go off King. Uh, we'll save that for the sam elliott episode i just finished 1883 great great show <clears throat> so yeah bernthal is in three taylor sheridan films there's sicario uh, which Sheridan wrote, and Wind River, which he was his directorial debut, or what he calls his directorial debut, and he wrote as well. And then there's Those Who Wish Me Dead, which came out last year and barely made its budget back, but sure. Streaming, though. Streaming. HBO Max. Yeah. HBO Max, baby. Uh, so in Sicario, Bernthal plays Ted, a police officer who meets a FBI agent, Kate Maser, played by Emily Blunt, at a bar. Ted is actually a cartel contractor who is hired to kill Kate as she is the only known member of a joint task force attempting to track down the leader of the Mexican Sonora cartel, Fausto Alarcón, played by uh, Julio Cesar Cedillo. Big Rich. Ted, man. Long time, man. Hey, How you been? Good to see you, man. Yeah, good to see you too. Yeah. How you been? Get your groove on, huh? Oh, man, we just started. We just got here. All right. You, uh... Oh, you gonna introduce me, man? Or? Ted, Phoenix PD, Kate, my partner. How you doing? Just Ted's fine. I saw you play softball once. Softball? <clears throat> she was at the game, Ted. The game? Okay. <laughs> when you uh, struck out in slow pitch softball. You played really, really well. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I'm gonna head back to that bar now. Uh, can I get you all another round? Yeah, sure. Cool. All right. Ted's a good guy. Mm hmm. Divorced. 
And yeah, this is the first of Taylor Sheridan's neo-Western trilogy, followed by 2016's Hell or High Water and 2017's Wind, Wind River. It's a very stark, brutal film set in the parts of America and Mexico no one wants to go to or think about. And a film that benefits from a less is more approach as it's rare we see outside of its protagonist's perspective, much like something like Chinatown or um, The Ghost Rider, which John Bernthal is also in. Um, except for, of course, for the act breaks, which feature uh, Mexican policeman Diaz, who's also a double agent for the cartel. Love that stuff. Yeah. Um, and this is the, actually the film uh, that convinced me um, John Bernthal should play the male lead in a rom-com. Because he's so charming when yeah. they first meet. Uh, he turns into a psycho as soon as he gets her alone. But um, yeah, he's just so charming. He's got a southern accent. He's like, bu- he's buying her drinks. He's spinning around on the dance floor as they're, I think they're line dancing or something or they're dancing anyway. And he's friends with Daniel Kaluuya. What's cooler than that? Um, is, Here, here's the thing. Hmm. You say rom-com. I've got something even better. Nicholas Sparks movie. Yes. Because he's got pain. That's true, yeah. And you got to use that. Mm, the Longest Ride spin-off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, why isn't he in, like, Dear John 2 or something like that? <laughs> I don't know. Dear John. He, should, he, should, he should be in one of those movies where he's, like, a sensitive soldier. Coming I, home from protecting the homeland. I was trying to find the clip that went viral of him on Hot Ones. And mm. I typed in, like, John Bernthal, you know, filter. Hot. <laughs> no, like, <laughs> came up with a lot of Filter verified. And, like, so many people, like thirsting over mm, John Bernthal yeah, he's yeah. very popular with the ladies yeah, people love him yeah, yeah. It's a bit he's rough. kind of like a thinking man's hunk yeah of. yeah and because um, he, initially, he initially comes across as sweet sensitive and charming and his sequence it's like, is like it's own kind of self-contained 90s woman danger suspense movie and then Emily Blunt's character Kate Mesa realises uh, through like um, I think it's like little uh, bracelets he has on that uh, oh shit this guy's a member of the cartel uh, or is contracted out and so um, she tries to fight back and he, John Barthol's a big guy Emily Blunt short woman despite being FBI agent um, and he starts to win until Alejandro Gillick who is played by Benicio Del Toro who's kind of one of the shady CIA contractors uh, along with uh, Matt Graver played by Josh Brolin in the movie uh, stops him and uh, then the two of them then they like send uh, Emily, Emily Blunt to get seen to by paramedics and they um basically stick uh, John Bernthal in the back of a police car and torture him through really basic but like quite disturbing methods they're like pulling on his eyebrow trying to tear it and he's like and it's like these really kind of drawn out screams like I just did there which make for great audio Um, you never realise how painful a wet willy could probably be until someone digs right into your eardrum right yeah, yeah. Uh, not that I've not that anyone's ever done that to me but you can imagine it you know it makes you Maybe not sympathetic, but definitely sensitive to this guy's pain. And I think it's what's what's good about um, Sicario is that it's first of all it's directed by Denis Villeneuve, um, who I think some of the best American thrillers like um, like Sicario or Hell or High Water are directed by outsiders. So <laughs> by Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> by Denis Villeneuve, yeah, um, um, who's French Canadian, and then Hell or High Water is directed by David McKenzie, who's Scottish. And it takes, I think it takes an outside perspective to, on US law enforcement to realize, oh, things are fucked. You've got like, you're collecting one guy from a city just on the border of America and you're, you have to use like Mexican police, Mexican federal police. You have to use the CIA, you have to use um, Delta Force, the Army Special Forces, the US Marshals, the FBI. And that's six people uh, groups in that joint task force already and it's like things are crazy we just send the guards in and kick down the door um 
but let's not get into Irish policing on this isn't the podcast for that um, and I think this is the best thriller within Sheridan's trilogy whereas uh, Wind River is the best drama and I like I think Hell or High Water is great too and it got all the awards recognition uh, but I guess it's just the last one I saw so it's it's I think it's, I would rank it number three in my rankings of these three and I mean considering where Ch- Taylor Sheridan has come after Sicario um, he's probably like the most powerful man in American television right Build now TV empire yeah yeah, yeah. I mean what 18 uh, there's Yellowstone I wrote it out. Um, current TV shows Yellowstone 1883 and Mayor of Kingstown mm. then in development there's a sequel to 1883 called 1932 there's another Yellowstone spinoff there's a gangster series with Sylvester Stallone called The Tulsa King and then there's three other shows on top of that Jesus David Simon eat your heart out I know yeah as you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Fad Camp is a comedy podcast about the ridiculousness of fad diets and diet culture, hosted by me, Grace Mulvey. And me, Connor Dowling. If you have a body of any kind, chances are you've crossed paths with at least one of the bizarre diet trends we cover in our show. And between me and Connor, we have done nearly every fad diet there is. Juice cleansing. Fasting. The potato diet. Which is actually a real diet, by the way, and we don't recommend it. So join us as we try to make sense of the madness that is diet culture. Find Fad Camp everywhere you get your podcasts and make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Fad Camp Podcast. I know that face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Yeah, do you want to talk about Wind River? Yeah, sure. Uh, in Wind River, Bernthal plays Matt Rayburn, a winter security guard at a drilling facility in the snowy Wyoming wilderness. Uh, Natalie Hansen's Matt's girlfriend, and she's played by Kelsey uh, Asbill, a uh, frozen body is found in the snow on the Wind River Indian Reservation, prompting Wildlife Services agent Corey Lambert, played by Jeremy Renner, and rookie FBI agent Jane Banner, played by Elizabeth Olsen, to investigate. I remember I was stationed up at this place called Point Magoo, right? It's about an hour north of L.A. It's Christmas. I woke up. I'm all alone. You know, I don't have anybody. And what the Navy does at Christmas time is they have these dumb little skits in the mess hall, you know, for the guys without families. And I wasn't going to stick around for that bullshit. So I just, I got my truck and I hightailed it out of there. And I wound up in this little mountain town called Ojai. I get there and it's like, it's like fruit farms, vineyards. And there's this mountain surrounding it, you know, like protecting the town. And the people there, like, everybody smiles at each other, you know? Yeah. And they say hello, and it's like, I remember thinking that they were all like, oh, they had these looks in their eyes. Like they were in on some sort of secret, like they had all figured it out. And there's this mission, the Spanish mission right there in the middle of town. They're having Christmas mass. They're celebrating Christmas in 70 degree weather, you know? <laughs> and I just went and I picked me up an orange off a tree and 
sat down on a bench and listened to that choir sing, eat my orange. And it was the best Christmas I ever had. I want to live there. Um, so this woman, Natalie Hansen, is found dead in the snow by um, Corey Lambert, Jeremy Renner's character. Um, but Matt, her boyfriend, played by John Berthold, is nowhere to be found. And so they're wondering, oh, did he kill? Did he kill her or is something else going on? Long story short, something else is going on, but I won't spoil what. Um, and I think this, this is definitely like the most tragic and grim of uh, this kind of trilogy of neo-Western films that... Uh, Taylor Sheridan directed and certainly one of the most tragic movies of the last decade anyway and Bernthal only has one scene much like in Sicario before he's quickly disposed of um, but it's remarkable in like its structuring and it's and the like beautiful intimacy of it and eventually the horrible horrible brutal way it ends I just want to hold you there um, mm-hmm. I was meant to say this at the beginning um, I was telling someone that I was watching a bunch of um, Bernthal movies for the podcast and it was uh, I was telling Dave Hanratty who I work with at Joe and he said in what Taylor Sheridan film does John Bernthal get utterly brutalized? Many added. Trick question. It's all of them. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> good line. Yeah, he's right as well. No. Um, so Bernthal's scene comes in the middle of an already very tense standoff between the FBI, the Wind River uh, Reservation Police, led by Graham Greene, great uh, Native American actor. Or actually, no, sorry, Graham Greene is First Nations. He's Canadian. Um, and uh, they're up against and the police from outside the reservation as backup and they're up against the kind of wintertime um, security forces um, who are kind of madmen. they're all like driven a little crazy by the snowy wilderness um, because they have to all they've got is like booze and maybe the odd trip to town but like, as I said it interrupts an already punishingly tense scene before it too becomes a punishingly tense scene and when it ends, it drops us right back into the middle of the preceding sequence in which everything ex- then explodes. Uh, it's still remarkably confident filmmaking from a first-time director whose vision and everything he's done, I think, is u- very uniquely cinematic. I haven't seen Mayor of Kingston, but I've watched all of 1883 in prep for watching Yellowstone at some stage. And that feels very, like, big and grand because um, it's all set outdoors. <laughs> um, in, it helps them, like, all those things are set in, like, the wilderness yeah, of America. yeah. yeah. And and it's just insanely confident to interrupt the standoff with a scene of like really profound, beautiful in- intimacy about a, a guy, uh, Bernthal's character, who you get the sense was always kind of a wanderer with no fixed address and who has here out in a mountainous snow desert finally kind of found love um, with Natalie Hansen, um, only to have it all like cruelly torn apart in a matter of minutes. And then to switch back to uh, a kind of Mexicans, I guess, Wyoming standoff situation. Um I th- like I saw it for um, I think it was Film Ireland um, for a review for them and I-, I always remember the movie became like a masterpiece of like tension for me because there's the bit where like the they meet up with the wintertime security guards and they all like come in from all directions to the police and uh, Elizabeth Olsen's Jane Banner um, and they're like and they're like oh can we uh, go talk to I think his name is Pete the guy that um, did what happened to um, yeah. he shows up in Natalie um, Hansen yeah he wish me James. dead and he's very funny and I was like I hate this guy yeah what he did in Wind River yeah. yeah he's in Destroyer as well he's actually incredible in Destroyer he's, he's in um The Endless yes he's in that too yeah he's really really good um James Johnson I think his name is yeah. uh, but anyway and um 
yeah and as they're moving towards pete's uh cabin they're like um security guards slowly start to kind of surround the police forces and the one of the police guys is like are you flanking me and all of a sudden it like it's like someone's clicked flipped a switch and you're like you don't feel safe anymore regardless of what like whether you're watching it at home in the cinema screen or you know it, it's crazy how well it works and then um and then just to interrupt that with like such a beautiful scene and to have it work so well is just a real like marker for incredible talent i think mostly the film is kind of about grief and death on a, like a cultural national and personal level because it is about the the statistic that murder and sexual assault uh, statistics are kept for every every demographic of woman in america except for native americans which is what it says at the end as like a title and uh, it's just a very sad movie but uh, yeah it's just some of um jeremy renner elizabeth olsen's best work because i'd only ever seen either of them in um marvel stuff and i was just kind of blown away by like this monologue jeremy renner gives about grief counseling where he's like you can't steer from the pain if you do you'll rob yourself of every memory of her from her first step to her last smile Whoa. and that's that's wonderful and it's great work by um a great showcase for like older maybe lesser known native american actors like as i said graham green and uh, then guild birmingham who's yes. probably best known uh uh, probably best known now for um, Yellowstone and Hell or High Water and Wind River, but uh, before this was known as Billy Black, um, the wheelchair-bound father of Jacob Black in the Twilight series. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, one of my favorite movies of the last decade. Uh, do you want me to talk about Those Wish Me Dead? Go for it. Yeah, yeah so um, this tells the story of a boy named Connor whose life is put in danger after his forensic accountant father uncovers evidence incriminating some high-ranking people. Going on the run, he winds up in a small town in the Montana wilderness where his uncle Ethan, John Bernthal, is the deputy sheriff. There, a smoke jumper, which is a specially trained wildland firefighter who parachutes onto fire sites, takes him in. Uh, the smoke jumper is named Hannah and is played by Angie Jolie. This is as two assassins, played by Aidan Gillen and Nicholas Holt, assigned to kill the boy, start a massive forest fire in the area as a diversion to preoccupy the police. <laughs> Self-medicating your way through it, huh? Oh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Where do they teach you that stare that y'all have? Not that one. That one, that one right there. That one right oh, there. Oh, that one. You feel it, Benny? I can see it right through your sunglasses. It's going right into my heart, my soul. It's a lot of hours in front of the mirror, bud. <laughs> mean and sexy. <laughs> Why'd they put you in a fire tower? Well, I'm just lucky, I guess. Yeah, fuck them. And their tests. Fuck them. Amen. Fuck them all. Which town? 217, close to you. So uh, keep the barbecues low or I'm going to have to send in an airstrike. Um, yeah, this is a movie that came out last year. I feel like it got lost in the COVID release date shuffle. Mm. I think the best thing about it is how much it feels like a 90s Hollywood blockbuster in that like it's so yeah, it's watchable. Like, it's like cliffhanger. Exactly. Yeah. Like, the cast is great. The premise is awesome. It's got exciting spectacle. I love the the fire and the shootouts mm. and the smoke jumping. Like it's so cinematic, but it's also very modest. It, like it's less than a hundred minutes long. Doesn't overstay its welcome. It's not trying to reinvent the wheel. Mm. Like it does what it says on the tin. And there's something about that simplicity is, that is very refreshing now, especially in an era where most blockbusters, I'm thinking like the MCU, the DCU, the Fast and Furious movies, they're so overblown, both yeah. in terms of like their budgets, which I think for studios to like sand off any, rough edges because they don't want to risk uh, losing mm. any money from any section of customers yeah um, but also in their storytelling like this emphasis on sequels and connected universes which are just becoming ever more complicated yeah saw Doctor Strange last night and was like really struggling to keep up <laughs> as yeah. to oh, what was happening yeah, yeah. Um, even though like 
was surprised at how much Sam Raimi is in that movie. But just sidebar. But anyway, mm. kind of good. But um, I just think like Those Wishing Dead has like thrills, great story, holds your attention for 95 minutes or so. And it's just done, completed, mm. bye bye. You know, don't need any more. Yeah, I, I like l- how it ends on a note of uncertainty, but with no like resolution to that. Sure, yeah. yeah. And um, I feel like the success of Taylor Sheridan and his like movie and TV empire he's building <laughs> is down to the fact that like he is like... As well as those massive biceps. That man is cut. That's He's true. huge. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, just think that he has um, identified the type of on-screen stories certain sections of the population miss and is just, like, providing them for yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And so. I think his work definitely appeals to adults that enjoy mainstream movies, or at least what were mainstream movies, but are feeling kind of alienated by the oversaturation in recent years of the market by, you know, superhero movies and shows. Like, mm. I just think he saw the gap. But what do you think about it? I liked it. I think um, in just in terms, compared to a lot of other thrillers, I think it feels like it's really punching up. Um, I think in terms of Sheridan's output, especially the that trilogy, uh, it it's a bit more middle of the road, um, but, which is no bad thing. Um, and I think the closest comparison I have is, as I said, is the Stallone is the '90s Stallone film Cliffhanger. But even then, this feels a lot more complex in its characters, as it's kind of about. Oh, someone overcoming their failure to save someone by rescuing someone else, whereas Stallone is trying to stop a former MI6 a- agent gone <laughs> yeah. gone rogue robbing a US Treasury plane in the Rockies. Um, and I think a lot of people say that Hollywood doesn't really know how to use um, John Bernthal, and I think that's true when he's a higher on the call sheet than the likes of Ford versus Ferrari, um, which I was really excited for because I saw that he was so third listed on Wikipedia anyway, and then he's just everything he's the good line of the trailer that's kind of it yeah everything good goes to Josh Lucas he's amazing in the movie he's really good yeah yeah Josh Lucas is the studio in the movie I think the whole yeah. movie is a metaphor for James Mangold making uh, the Wolverine movies yeah yeah but here's the thing there doesn't need to be two of them you know like sure Lee Iacocca um, great name John Bernthal's character doesn't need to be in there unfortunately yeah it could have just been Josh Lucas and Tracy Letts who is unreal in the movie. Yes. Um, <laughs> I love it. Be very really, really good. Yeah, um, uh, yeah and I was, uh, as I was saying uh, before, I rudely interrupted myself with uh, Ford versus Ferrari. A lot of people say that Hollywood doesn't know how to use John Bernthal, and I think that's true when he's higher on the call sheet in the likes of Ford versus Ferrari. But it's clear that he wants to that he wants to work for the movie rather than have the movie work for him. So I think he's an actor with very little ego, which should be clear from like playing the increasingly dislikable but kind of understandable Shane in The Walking Dead and his switch from charmer to psycho to pathetic mess in Sicario and his role as a policeman turned prisoner in Those Who Wish Me Dead, uh, where it's his pregnant wife, Alison, who's played by a pretty unknown, I think, Medina Singhorn, uh, who does all the shooting, horse rising and rescuing, uh, as well as setting Aidan Gillen's face on fire. So good. Yeah, such a good scene. Yeah. And I love that he doesn't die. The rest of the movie, he's like two-faced. And yeah, bad. yeah. <laughs> and I think it takes a lot of humility in an actor to step into a genre that's a kind of cross-genre, thriller, western, that's often considered very masculine and macho and kind of step aside to let not just like a black pregnant woman kind of take charge, but also so that the best story that could be possibly be told, be told. Um, and I think it, I think Bernthal defines the kind of actor this podcast is really about. Someone who can get out of both their own way and the script's way to make the best possible film. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. And I think that, like, I feel like what I said at the top of the podcast about Bernthal's like, interesting masculinity, you know, that he's kind of the thinking man's hunk, that mm. makes him such a great fit for Sheridan, whose films are all set in the American wilderness and have macho poeticism mm. to spare. And, like, 
we first see him in, the, in Does Wish Me Dead um, showing up at the graduation ceremony for the new smoke jumper recruits and all the older ones like Jolie's character Hannah are you know, watching outside drinking and Ethan goes up to Hannah who he later learns is ex and her friends and they all start like teasing each other and he but he warns the smoke jumpers like no fighting please do not jump off shit with parachutes and immediately next scene Hannah jumps off a thing with a parachute Ethan scolds her and he's maybe a little mean in that like he puts her in handcuffs which he, she says hurt and he replies like good maybe you'll learn something <laughs> and no wonder you failed your psych eval and you learned that like she's struggling to cope after being unable to save a, a group of people in a forest fire recently and is maybe doing these kind of death defying stunts to take your mind off of it mm. I suppose and um, so you're not really sure at, at first 100% about Bernthal's character and I think what's really Sheridan-y about it is that, like, he just, from that point on, continually shows he's the greatest dude. Yeah, <laughs> He yeah, goes yeah. home to his wife. And you know, he runs the, the, like, school for teaching people survivalist skills with. Soda butt survival school. <laughs> yes, yeah. And um, she says, like, I heard you had to run in with the hot shot. Hope you weren't too hard on her. And immediately he concedes, maybe I was a little hard on her. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he's, like, he's, like, nice. He's much yeah, a yeah. bit of a mistake. And, um, yeah, I love the bit where they're on the sofa and he's lying on her stomach listening to their baby kick and they're teasing each other and she puts him in a headlock and they're mm, laughing. Oh, no. Yeah, and it's very cute and intimate and, like, I just love that they're for real. And, like, mm. I think like a lesser movie would have him be kind of flirty with Jodie's Hannah because they previously dated, but it's more he cares for her as a friend. Yeah, yeah. And, um... Yeah, just by the time he's like in those Wish Dead, Bernthal's played like a bunch of law enforcement officers and soldiers. So you really buy him as a figure of authority and mm. like in action set pieces, like he's great physicality. And um, yeah, I think the best scene of the movie happens two thirds of the way in where the hitmen force Ethan at gunpoint to help search for the boy because he knows the terrain and how to follow people's tracks. And basically Ethan spots the kid's footprint and tries to like subtly obscure it, but Holt's character catches him and tells Gillen's character that the child's alive and Gillen says to Ethan like, because we're about to judge your tracking skills, deputy. And Ethan says back, like, I don't think you're going to judge shit. I'm done. I think I'm just going to go ahead and keep my dignity. And you know, Ethan tries to, like, go the assassins into killing him so that it will save his nephew. And he's like, look, we all know how this thing's going to end, right? Let's just do it now. And Gilm says, like, play your cards right, deputy. You can live through this. And he's like, do I look stupid? <laughs> Are you going to let me live? That'd be a mistake. I will shout your description to anybody who will listen. I will hunt you down. And he's like, shoot me. Kill me. <laughs> and, like, I just love the weird energy. Burnthal mustered up in that scene going from, like, laughter to anger to fear. It's, like, incredible to watch. And just the conceit of the scenario is such a fresh spin on the type of scene we've seen before in, like, so many other movies. And, like in those wish me dead it's very tense but you also like you know it doesn't play out in the way that you might expect yeah yeah, yeah which absolutely. i really like about yeah. it but um yeah i think it's a really good movie yeah it's um i don't know what i expected because i went on a real taylor sheridan binge in the month of april when i found out we were covering burns so i watched the carry i watched heller high water i watched wind river and i watched 1883 all within the same four week span and then i watched this and i don't know uh i don't know what i was expecting um i wasn't disappointed uh but i I think watching it too close to any of those, certainly any of those movies, yeah, you will it, end up a little uh, not disappointed because it does. It gives exactly what it says in the tin. Yeah, it doesn't have any of the kind of social commentary that those other projects have. I haven't seen 1883, no. but the movies at least. Um, can I talk about Pilgrimage? Yes, go yeah. for it. Yeah. So set in the 13th century, a group of Irish monks, including a young novice played by a priest, Spider-Man Tom Holland, embark on a reluctant pilgrimage to escort their monastery's holiest relic to Rome. However, their mission becomes fraught with danger as they trek across an island ravaged by years of tribal warfare. Yeah, it's uh, it's always nice to talk about an Irish movie on this podcast, especially quite a good one, like Pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. It's directed by Brendan Muldowney, who just recently had a movie in cinemas and go up and shudder called The Cellar. Uh, between that and pilgrimage he seems pretty good at emulating the tone of a particular subgenre and transplanting it into an irish setting 
The Senator didn't get great reviews when it came out, and it was definitely flawed, but I kind of dug it for having the vibe of, like, Lucio Fulci, Haunted House movie, like The Beyond or House of the Cemetery, even if it kind of lacked the memorable weirdness or outre horror of one of those, like a Fulci movie would mm. have. But I think Pilgrimage is a much better movie. Kind of reminded me of those gritty medieval movies like The Northman recently or the ones some we covered on the podcast like um, Flesh and Blood, you know, the movie with uh, Jeffrey Jason Lee, Paul Verhoeven yeah. movie, or Valhalla Rising with Mads Mikkelsen, films which all basically betray the past as being lawless and terrible, a time where danger was around every corner and life was cheap, but also have, you know, spiritual or supernatural elements. And um, it's definitely just cool to see one of those movies set in 13th century Ireland that feature a well cast Tom Holland as a kind hearted innocent young man thrown into a dangerous situation speaking Irish briefly <laughs> um, I do think the movie stumbles a little in its opening section because it has to explain to viewers not hugely familiar with the time period <coughs> me um, <laughs> <laughs> what was happening in Ireland then basically Ireland has been invaded by the Normans who are fronted by a villainous Richard Armitage you know from the, the Hobbit trilogy and mm. um, he's the Tooth Fairy in the Hannibal series yeah um, and the Normans are at war with Gaelic Irish warriors. And um, it also has to explain what's going on with the Latin church at the time and the crusades and why the church would want this relic that they believe holds special powers. And like, it, to its credit, like it never gets too exposition-y, but it feels a little bit like homework at the start, especially <laughs> when you're you're like Milhouse and the Simpsons, like, when are we going to get to the fighting? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's it. Once someone's head out on the road, like it really becomes a bit of a banger. Um, really brutal fight scenes, really tense set pieces also does a pretty great job of staying kind of realistic and grounded while always feeling like it could turn into something more supernatural, which brings me to Bernthal's character. He plays the mute, a man who, as his name suggests, doesn't speak. Tom Holland's character, Brother German, uh, found him washed up on a beach years before the events of the movie. And then since then, like, the mute has served as a lay brother doing manual work for the monks and as such joins him on their quest to transport the relic. And he has a bit of a special bond with Dermot because he took him in and showed him kindness and... Yeah, the only thing they know about him is he's got a massive cross tattoo on his back and holes like scouring all over his body. And when the monks come across Richard Armitage's character, Raymond de Meville, and his men, <laughs> they say they recognize the mute from fighting in the Crusades. And it's suggested that maybe his silence and helping of the monks is his way of atoning for the atrocities he committed in the fighting. And um, what's cool about the screenplay is that it keeps putting the monks in truly like hopeless situations where you think like these men who have no fighting skills have no chance of coming out alive. But the mute, along with perhaps the relic, ends up being kind of the wild card that gives them a chance of survival like throughout the movie the monks say that when anyone not pure of heart touches the relic a bell is heard and then that person is killed immediately and then at a later point the monks are ambushed in the woods by Gaelic warriors who want the relic and the mute is knocked out trying to save Dermot but when one of the Gaelic warriors goes to steal the relic the mute awakens and just sees red and he stabs the guy trying to steal the relic with a sword through his face <laughs> and then massacres a bunch of the other men and he just comes like feral and um, he almost kills Tom Holland's Dermot, but Dermot's cries snap him out of his murderous rage. And um, after that, they, there's this representative from Rome who's following him on the trip. And he's like, did you not hear the bell? Did you not witness the miracle? When those savages defiled the rock of St. Matthias, look how God brought an instrument of vengeance from the lowliest of his servants. Which is kind of mean. Like, yeah, <laughs> he didn't need to bring in lowliest. That, yeah. But um, it does elevate the mute from feeling kind of like big, powerful, strapping mm. man to being like mythic, you know? And um, yeah, the relic is basically a MacGuffin, but the, there's another part of the movie where the monks are fleeing from the Normans and they come to a shore but have no boat. And it seems like all is lost and they all decide to like get down and pray to the relic. And suddenly they hear a bell and they follow the sounds and it leads them to a boat transporting cargo. Yeah. And you're not sure if it's because they prayed to the relic, they heard the noise, but it could have been. And that's, mm. I love that because whatever you think depends on whether you're a believer or not. Yeah. You know? And um, yeah, before watching Pilgrimage, I wasn't sure how Bernthal would work in a movie set in the 13th century because I think of him as being kind of like very modern and American. But I think a lot of that has to do with his voice. And since he's 
playing a character who only says one word throughout the movie it's not really an issue mm. and I think similar to the mute character Mads Mixon played in Valorizing I think Bernthal manages to feel enigmatic and mysterious in the right ways while communicating everything the audience needs to know about his character particularly how much he you know cares for Tom Holland's Dermot I also think he looks amazing with the longer hair and the beard I think there's great physicality to his fight scenes and um Though, as I said, Bernthal only gets one word in the movie. It's the most memorable word, like, <laughs> spoilers. But at the end of the movie, Dermot and a few of the other monks are trying to escape from the Normans in a boat, but the tide is low and they have to push the boat out to sea. And the mute stays behind to essentially sacrifice himself to buy the monks more time. And he winds up engaging in one-on-one combat with Richard Armitage's character, Rimmel. And Rimmel stabs him uh, with this, like, horrible multi-pronged barb torturing device. And you think the mute is done for mm. And Raymond had questioned the mute earlier as to where he recognized him from. And after he stabbed the mute, he kind of picks him up and says, like, where are you from? And Bernthal's character says, hell. <laughs> and then growls and bites Raymond's neck, severing his artery, <laughs> which is class. And um, just like, it's a fun movie to talk about. Man. Like, it came out in 2017, which is probably the only time you could ever make it with this cast. Because apparently Tom Holland has said that him and John Bernthal were auditioning for the roles of Spider-Man and Punisher while filming the movie. Oh, wow. And we're like both recording self-tapes on set and sending them to Marvel. And I think obviously those projects launched them both to different levels of stardom where they probably wouldn't do a smaller movie like it again. Mm, yeah. But um, it is very cool that there is an Irish medieval epic starring Spider-Man, the Punisher and the Tooth Fairy. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah. Yeah, just coming up for Bernthal, like obviously he's got the David Simon show We Own the City, which is out next month in Ireland. Um, He's going to be in Sharp Stick which is the uh, Lena Dunham movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which has gotten mixed reviews. It premiered in Sundance area this year. I'm excited to see it. But um, I think most excitingly coming up is that he will be in the upcoming sequel series to the Paul Schrader, Richard Gere classic, American Gigolo. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Which I will be watching. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, I wanted to mention a change to our release schedule. Uh, we will probably have posted something about this on our social media, but for the next while, we are going to move from putting out episodes every two weeks to every three weeks basically after years of wonderful work on the podcast our editor Shalene Fernandez has left us for brighter things so to fill the gap I've been taking over the editing for the last few episodes Andrew is going to learn how to do it as well but until we're more efficient at it you know we need more time between the episodes and so I'm sorry but uh, hopefully it won't be the case for too long thank you for your patience yes um, rate and view and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from email I know that face at gmail.com follow us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram if you love I know that face Please consider joining five euro a month to Headstuff Plus, where you can find exclusive special bonus episodes. We have multiple available now, including a few in our Leading Legend series, focusing on A-listers like Brad Pitt, Denzel Washington, Jody Foster, Case 2. Um, Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, what we play, and how we play it. You can also check me out at Joe.ie. See you later, Cinefiles. Bye-bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.